Hello, A Pushers. It's Mr. Blackadder. It is Sunday afternoon at 4 o'clock, and it is like 68 and sunny outside. So a little bit of beauty in what's been kind of a dreary time for, for world events and for world history. Um, just like last week and probably just like next week, we are living in historic times. Um, and so this podcast is, I think, is an interesting way for us to reach out to you and get you a little bit of new content. And also, I think it's an interesting way for us to document um, what we're living through. I hope you're doing something similar. I hope you're keeping track of, of how you feel, what your life is, what it's like. This week, I'm going to talk to you about Elvis. Um, I'll talk to you about his, his amazing rise, his inauspicious death, and a very odd meeting with Richard Nixon in the White House in between. Looking forward to it. Miss y'all. It was an inglorious end for the most recognizable and profitable pop culture icon of the last quarter century. The man who spent 67 weeks at the top of the Billboard charts and put out 129 albums was found dead on the bathroom floor, feet away from the toilet and without a pulse. While the official cause of death was cardiac arrest, anyone around the king of rock and roll knew it was years of intense prescription drug abuse. In the last year and a half of his life, Elvis filled prescriptions for over 12,000 pills, primarily barbiturates and sedatives. It was August 16, 1977, and Elvis was dead on the bathroom floor. Elvis Presley, born to a poor family in Tupelo, Mississippi, had started recording music in the summer of 1953. Record exec Sam Phillips, already familiar with blues icons like Howlin' Wolf and B.B. King, would repeat to anyone who would listen that if he could find a, quote, white man with a Negro sound, he'd make a billion dollars. In Elvis, Phillips had found his man. Black artists had a ceiling. While popular, white audiences couldn't or wouldn't openly flock to African-American musicians. The first song you're about to hear is Slippin' and Slidin' by Lil' Richard, which does not chart. The second you'll hear is more recognizable and is part of the symbolic power of Elvis selling over a billion albums in the course of his recording career. Elvis began work on his first album three months after the Brown vs. Board of Education ruling desegregated schools. Joseph McCarthy dominated headlines, and Dwight Eisenhower was struggling to maintain a tenuous peace in the wake of Joseph Stalin's sudden death. Elvis and his gyrating hip seemed to be a powerful distraction, particularly for the American youth tired of seeing a grandfather in the White House and hiding under their desk from a possible nuclear bomb while at school. Elvis was an explosion of a different variety. Well, bless my soul, what's wrong with me? I'm itching like a man on a fuzzy tree. My friends say I'm acting wild as a bug. I'm in love. I'm all shook up. Ooh, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. In March of 1958, Elvis was drafted into the U.S. Army. 
the 21-year-old burgeoning pop icon was making both a patriotic and business decision by avoiding a fight with the government over his draft status. The press, surrounding his willingness to serve, proved to be a boon to his record sales, and the time spent in West Germany would cement the young singer as an American icon. Crowds looking to get a glimpse of Elvis were problematic for military forces, adjacent to the most likely location in which the Cold War could turn hot. While Elvis took his service seriously, chopped off his signature hair, and received the normal $76 daily pay, Army brass were not interested in Elvis as a Jeep driver. Instead, they used Elvis for PR. If they could draft a singing sensation, they could draft anyone. Eisenhower did receive a letter or two of protest. Dear President Eisenhower, My girlfriends and I are writing all the way from Montana. We think it's bad enough to send Elvis Presley to the Army, but if you cut his sideburns off, we will just die. You don't know how we feel about him. I really don't see why you, why you have to send him in the army at all. But we beg you, please, please, don't give him a GI haircut. Oh, please, please don't. If you do, we will just about die. Elvis Presley lovers, Linda Kelly, Sherry Bain. Army leaders also knew Elvis was a convenient tripwire. If the Soviets invaded West Germany, international support would naturally fall to the side that had the beloved crooner. Service was not as kind to Elvis as it was to the army. By the time he was discharged on what his superior officers called E-Day in celebration, in 1960, Elvis had lost his mom, been exposed to simulant drugs, and fallen in love with a 14-year-old. It was strange days for a poor kid from Memphis. The 1960s were a decade of confusion for Elvis. His records continued to sell of massive numbers, but he was continually typecast in movies as a young vet looking for love. Fans flocked to the theaters, but Elvis continually lost relevance throughout the decade. Moviegoers were less interested in fun in Acapulco when JFK was killed and the country slid into war in Southeast Asia. In 1970, Elvis wrote a letter to President Richard Nixon decrying the state of the country. Dear Mr. President, first, I would like to introduce myself. I'm Elvis Presley and admire you and have great respect for your office. I talked to Vice President Agnew in Palm Springs three weeks ago and expressed my concern for our country. The drug culture, the hippie elements, the SDS, Black Panthers, etc. do not consider me as their enemy or as they call it, the establishment. I call it America and I love it. Sir, I can and will be of any service that I can to help the country out. I have no concern or motives other than helping the country out. Nixon, while surprised, was impressed enough to take a meeting and ultimately gave Elvis a badge from the Bureau of Narcotics. Nixon thought the badge was primarily symbolic. Elvis used the badge to transport suitcases full of prescription drugs all over the country while on tour. The photo of the meeting remains the most requested item from the National Archives, and the conversation between the men has inspired three Hollywood movies in the last 25 years. With a new badge in his collection, Elvis continued to fight for continued relevance. His album sold, his singles got radio play, and his televised specials from Hawaii still got massive ratings. But Elvis was increasingly an out-of-touch relic, replaced by the drug-influenced pop of the Beatles and the angrier Rolling Stones rock. The sock hops were over, and the war protests had begun. By 1972, songs like Return to Sender were much more likely to be played on your dad's radio as you cringed and ran upstairs to your room. You were likely as a teenager to put on something like the Rolling Stones. Return to sender. Return to sender. I gave a letter to the postman. He put it in his sack. Bright and early next morning, he brought my letter back. She wrote upon it. Return to sender.
Elvis was found dead on that bathroom floor, he was 42. Born at the tail end of the Great Depression, he had lived through a world war and been used as a symbolic soldier to prevent another. He had spoken out against illegal drugs, only to be consumed in an ocean of pills. He had dominated headlines for two decades until the culture seemed to simply pass him by. As we all are, Elvis was a product of his time. His entry into pop culture was at a difficult, racially charged moment. By the time of his death in 1977, America was somehow even more complex. Watergate had shattered trust in Nixon and the American presidency in general. And I want to say this to the television audience. I made my mistakes, but in all of my years of public life, I have never profited, never profited from public service. I've earned every cent. And in all of my years of public life, I have never obstructed justice. And I think, too, that I can say that in my years of public life, that I welcome this kind of examination because people have got to know whether or not their president is a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I've earned everything I've got. The president? Yes, sir. The president, indeed, was a crook. Challenges of civil rights felt less immediate by the late 1970s, but that's not to say that issues of race, gender, or disability were by any means solved. Elvis represents a generation of Americans that had hoped to see a happier America. Then they watched as their symbols of hope and freedom were assassinated, and listened as the nightly news gave a body count of just how many 19-year-olds died that day in Vietnam. They became adults and heard tapes of President Nixon disparaging women, Jews, African Americans, and arranging for a massive cover-up of a spying operation put in place by his aides. As the bitterness deepened, the boomers stopped singing Jailhouse Rock and watching Viva Las Vegas. Instead, many turned to drugs, left society, or both. Elvis didn't create modern American cynicism, but he was certainly around to see it born. Thank you all very much for listening this week, although I know it's assigned and mandatory, uh, but I, I still appreciate y'all listening. Um, as always, we as an A-Push team and we as a school are primarily concerned with you as people. U.S. students are second. You'll get more info from us this week about what shape the AP test will take. Um, it's just as strange as the rest of society these days. We'll figure it out, we'll get through it, and we'll piece something together that lets y'all feel confident walking in. So I hope you've enjoyed this process. We've had some fun making them. Thank you for listening, and I hope you stay safe. Bye.